All right, for those of you that are ready, we're gonna begin in 2 Timothy chapter two. Second Timothy chapter two. See, and then before you stand up for the reading of the word, I have kind of some warnings for you guys. Like you might have guessed, I told the kids it was going to be boring. Um, this is going to be kind of a break from my normal, although I do this from time to time. Um, I'm continuing the holiness series, but uh, this is going to be more like a Bible college class than it is like an encouraging, like yell at you and do something preaching uh, type thing. Um, it's important to get into these things and uh, I'll kind of develop that point um, at the beginning again. But um, the other thing is I'm going to be talking about groups of people um, and my heart is not to gossip, and I'll reiterate this at the end again too. My heart's not to gossip, but it's to be aware of like different cultures and different concepts. You know, sometimes you have these YouTube videos where they're like, be aware of this guy because this so-and-so is a false teacher and all that stuff. And I don't care so much for like calling out people by name. I feel like if we talk about biblical concepts, I don't care who you listen to, even if you disagree with them, like... Many of you have seen my library. I probably agree completely with about 15% of what's on my bookshelves. Um, and so I'm constantly challenging myself with opposing views. I don't want to like live in an echo chamber because it's so easy to get just cultish. Um, so anyway, I want to talk about groups of people and people we may be familiar with or may not be familiar with. Um, and my heart's not to gossip but I need to talk about these groups because there's theological and doctrinal ideas or cultural practices in each of these like larger groups that uh, need to be identified. And I'm zooming in on some specific things because for the rest of the holiness series, I'm, I'm going somewhere to talk about common objections to holiness in the flesh. Um, and not just the objections themselves, but the theological foundations that they spring from. So the holiness series, this has been four sessions so far. This is gonna be session five. And so we're kind of shifting in this series from like the encouraging, encouraging like preaching mode into like Bible school mode. So be a student with me and engage. And so because this is like Bible college class, I, I need your attention as much as you're able. So if you're in and out or on your phone or like doing different things, um, you might not get some stuff. <laughs> and then I might end up in a destination where it's like you don't have much context for it and you're like, what are we talking about? So just really need you to engage with me um, as we go through this series and then uh, I'll probably be able to write the next ones more simply. I had actually intended to cover all that. And even today, just writing things down, I couldn't get past the introduction. So this is really just the introduction into where I wanna go and talking about some of those deeper theological concepts. Um, I'm going to begin in uh, 1 Timothy chapter two, and then we're going to end here uh, because once I get to the end of the road with talking about these two groups, 
um, and some of the theological concepts that come and torment people, I'm going to end in the scripture with kind of a concept that comes from that, but then like the hope that we have to battle a common idea that I see a lot of times when people are wrestling for freedom from sin. Oh, you're coming up for a Bible. I thought you were coming up for like a, a Holy Ghost moment. You sure? Okay. All right, so 2 Timothy chapter two, and hopefully you're there if you'd stand for the reading of the word. And um, I'm gonna start in verse 19, and I think I'm actually just gonna read a few verses. I'll read through verse 22. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Now, in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and earthenware, and some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your word. And even as we just approach it in a, a different way, I just ask you for help. We thank you that, Holy Spirit, you love your word and you love your body. So even though we're talking about your body in some certain ways, we thank you that you prayed for her to be one, that she will be one. And like it says in Zephaniah, you will purify her lips so she can stand shoulder to shoulder with one voice, with one heart, with one mind. Before you. And so just ask you for help to be able to think and hear from you and speak and communicate. Ask you for uh, help for our friends to be able to understand and comprehend with all the saints that it would touch our hearts, that we would feel the emotional content of what you're releasing. And we just thank you for a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Jesus. We thank you for a spirit of prophecy, the testimony of Jesus, what you see and feel and the things you're gonna do about the things that you see and feel. So we thank you for your word. May it run swiftly, be glorified, and may Christ be exalted in our hearts. We love you so much. Amen, amen. amen. You may be seated. Thanks for standing with me. I love the Bible. Um, I forgot my glasses, so if I have to do something weird with my face, I'm trying to focus here. Um, but again, just the classroom style, I wanna equip you to understand um, really the landscape of where we're at modern day in the context of church history. Um, the best I can with just the few, few moments that I have. But uh, again, tonight we're continuing the holiness series. And my desire is to answer um, in this starting now and then onward, my desire is to answer common objections to living holy in the flesh um, and even be able to live without sin. Um, I'll talk about sin and mistakes in a greater way, but um, sin and mistakes are different. And so when I say you can live without sin in the flesh, a lot of the first questions that come up to me as a challenge or confusion is like, well, are you really that perfect? Like you don't make a mistake? And I'm like, I didn't say that. I'm just saying I don't have to sin if I don't want to. And I don't want to, so I'm not sinning. Um, and it's as, it's as simple as that 
to me. And so mistakes, I mean, we'll still make mistakes because our knowledge is incomplete, but just because we have incomplete knowledge doesn't make us sinful. So anyway, that's one example. We'll unpack that later when I get to to that point. Um, but I, I do want to answer some of these common objections. And uh, now there, there is quite a list that I compiled. So if you're Facebook friends with me, a couple weeks ago, you remember some of the clickbait I just threw out there? Um, I never went to Bible school. I just read a lot. I pray. I write a lot. And so the thing that I'm missing in my education oftentimes is like the discussion, the classroom discussion. And so my degree is in human resource management, so that's not really like helpful with theological training, um, but I love Jesus more than I love human resource management, so I haven't thought about that for years, but I read the Bible and read the Bible and read the Bible, and I read books by people that love the Bible. Um, but the, there's something different about discussion where it's like each individual can like poke and prod at different things, and so one of my favorite things to do is just throw up some clickbait that's going to tick off my reform friends, and let's not in like a... I, like, my heart's not looking for a fight, but I just enjoy the dialogue. I enjoy the back and forth, and I enjoy the challenge. And every time I'm in a discussion, I hold my beliefs open-handed because I just want truth. And I would hope that all of us would be the same way. Like, I, we just want truth. So if what I believe is wrong, prove it to me. And I'll change my mind. I'm happy to do so. In fact, the reason I believe what I believe now is because someone proved it to me, whether it was Holy Spirit, the Scripture, or someone using the Scripture by the Holy Spirit to help change my mind or a book I read or something. Um, if you challenge me and I don't believe you, then I present kind of, this is why I don't. I'm still open to being wrong, but here's why I don't believe you. Um, so you're welcome to challenge that as well. And uh, if, like, we go through the conversation, I still believe what I believe, then the result is I'm strengthened deeply in why I believe what I believe. Not just because I read this book, I heard some guy said it, but, like, these discussions are good for us to have. And so I have a very extensive list. Uh, one of the first posts I put out a few weeks ago was still looking for that Bible verse that says nobody's perfect. And of course, there's a flood of verses and different things that came in of like, there's no one righteous, not even one. Um, so it's like, I appreciate all those and I amen all those and we'll, we'll cover all these topics. But through the, those conversations, I was kind of doing research for this series as well. I was like, I can think of some objections, but I have some really zealous reform friends that would be able to uh, give me some good objections as well. And so I was just throwing out stuff like that. And we had great conversations. Uh, I thought, anyway. <laughs> I think some folks on the outside were reading it, and they're like, yikes, what is Dave doing? But uh, I, I enjoy that. And, you know, it is fruitful. Sometimes, like, I change my mind. Sometimes I do see people change their mind. Or where I see the most fruit is in the people that don't engage those posts at all, and then they'll private message me later, and they're like, wow, that was really helpful. Thank you. And uh, so... People actually read that stuff and are impacted by it. But uh, again, that was fun. But uh, encountering those objections, I noticed some themes and not just the, uh, the doctrinal issues or not just the objections themselves, but the underlying theology stuff. So um, again, we're not gonna get to really any of those but one, hopefully, at the end of the night. Um, but I do wanna hit them all in the rest of this series 
in a way that would launch you into your own journey to search. So I will commit to you to maybe not answer everything fully because I never feel like it's my primary job to feed you information. My primary job is to make you hungry so that you go and eat for yourself. And so if I can do that, then I feel like I've done my job. And so my goal in the next few sessions is to just put a table of contents together so that you can search these things out and figure out what you believe. And then you can get on my Facebook and challenge me or just come face to face and challenge me after a prayer meeting. And I don't mean challenge as in like an angry sword fight. I just, you know, the back and forth is good. And uh, we shouldn't shrink back from those things, especially when it was, you know, Paul's custom in Acts and Jesus's custom uh, in the Gospels as well. They would go to the synagogues to reason in the scriptures, it says. And many times, you know, especially in our charismatic community, we, not our church, but just in the larger charismatic community, we think like reasoning is obstructive and it's fleshly or demonic or something. And that's just, that's not the case, especially in light of the scripture that I just told the kids. Like, reasoning is the foundation of exorcism. There's a time to use your authority and say, devil, shut up and come out. But it's for the purpose so you can reason with the image bearer of God so that they can agree with truth so that that demon has no more foothold in them. Um, Now, I don't like sharing dreams and... It makes me uncomfortable, but sometimes I think they're helpful. Uh, And I wanted to share this one particular dream that I had in 2010. In the summer, I call it my out-of-the-box dream. And I had been saved maybe less than a year, and the Lord really began just exploding my dream life. And now, I wasn't looking for these because I was being lazy in the Word. This was during a time where I was spending 12 to 16-hour days, um, like as much as I could. I'm spending just reading the Bible through for the first time in my life, falling in love with Jesus. And uh, he's meeting me there. And so when I'm praying, um, I have a Bible open. When I'm doing Bible study, I'm talking to God about it. So they weren't mutually exclusive. They're one and the same. And that's why even during our prayer meetings, I'm like, let's pray the scriptures, guys, because the Lord loves his word so much. Um, So it was in the context of that season It wasn't like, I'm too lazy to read the Bible, so God just give me dreams. It was because I was reading my Bible, my mind was just constantly filled with his word in heaven that he was giving me dreams. And uh, one of the first ones I had was this out-of-the-box dream, and it was the first one that I saw Jesus in, and it threw me off. It was actually kind of weird. And so I I remember getting up out of bed, walking through my bathroom in real life, not the dream. And then all of a sudden, as I'm walking through this long hallway where our bathroom was at the house we lived at in Converse, um, the bathroom turned into a different hallway and I got to the end of the door and opened the door and it was this whole giant city. And I'm like, what? So I'm, I think it was a dream because when it was over, I like woke up in bed. Um, I have no idea like what happened with the logistics of that, but here I am looking at this city And this city is like, you know, just any downtown skyscraper type city. Um, How many of you have seen the movie Idiocracy? I know it's a terrible movie, but uh, there's cities in there where they're just so run down and torn apart. And it was like that, but it was also in the midst of gloom. Like everything was tight and compact. 
Um, and it was just gloomy. Like there's no, looked like a nasty rainy day. Like the nastiest, gloomiest rainy day you could think of. I've never seen that. Yeah, sounds very weird. Um, but uh, anyway, I see this city and I'm looking across the cityscape and there's literally buildings broken in half that are like duct taped to each other and just nothing, nothing made sense. It was just old, nasty, broken. And there was just all, all this added man-made stuff that didn't even make sense on these buildings just holding the city together. And I remember my first thought was, I gotta get out of here. So in the dream, I go back and get Allie out of bed. Now I know I didn't physically get her out of bed, but in the dream we were together. And as soon as I set my heart to, we gotta get out of here, is like the security in the city was alerted and we began getting chased through the city. Now it didn't make sense, but all I knew was the answer was up, just keep going up. And so we're just finding whatever stairs, ladders we can and whatever skyscrapers to just keep getting up and up and up and up and up and up running through the security. I'm not gonna get into the drama of that, but that's pretty much what the dream was for quite some time. But uh, at the very end, we got into the attic of the tallest skyscraper in the city. And as soon as we get up in the attic, it's just like this metal roof type stuff like you see here. Um, and we're in the attic and it just felt like we were safe from the security, like they knew they couldn't go any further. And all I had was just a box cutter. And I started cutting through just layers of like insulation and I worked construction so I know what to expect when I'm cutting through like a roof like this. And there were just layers to the building that didn't make sense and it was just frustrating and all I had was the box cutter to like cut through the insulation, the stone, the metal and just different layers of whatever. And uh, finally got through, but I was so used to being in that gloomy city that when the light came through, it was just like, ah, like, wow, that was really bright. And as soon as like my eyes adjust to the light, I see this hand coming down to pull me up. And I'm like, that's really cool. And as soon as I look up, I lock eyes with Jesus and at first, like you would think my, the first time I ever seen Jesus in a dream, you'd think it would be like this, wow, I worship you and adore you. But actually, it threw me off because he didn't look like what I expected him to look like. So we had this quick moment of, but are you though? <laughs> and he just reached his hand down and just the internal communication of the spirit being like, it is me. And again, it was just like short curly hair with brown eyes, and I'm like, I really didn't, didn't expect that. I've, and I've seen him other times, and he didn't look like he did in that first dream, which is interesting to me. Um, but uh, he pulls me out of the city. And then as soon as he pulls me out of the city, I go from like first-person view to third-person view, where I can see my body and Allie and Jesus all standing on top of the city, and it zooms out. And all it is was we just got outside of a cardboard box in a sense. And all around it was this lush, like beautiful green earth, beautiful skies, clear skies, the sun was shining. And it was beautiful to behold, but the tragedy was it wasn't cultivated. And so I feel like that dream has just always been an anchor of soul through the years as I'm just, I just genuinely want God in truth. 
And so just continuing to read the Bible cover to cover, the first three years I got saved, I didn't read anything but the Bible. No man taught me what to think and no man taught me how to preach. Um, And I just wanted truth. I just wanna know him. And so in reading the Bible after growing up in the church, there was so much that I began to see that was just like falling off where I'm like, well, that's not right. That's exaggerated. Why don't we talk about that? How come everyone's silent about that thing? And it it was just like, when you slow down and read line by line, uh, one of the things I do is literally everything has a color code. You know what that does besides many things it does for me, I won't get into it, it slows you down so you have to pay attention and consider, what does this mean? And through the years, I've had different keys of what the different colors mean, and I started off with something, but I, once you begin to see something else in scripture, it's like, well, now my key's insufficient because this doesn't fit in anything, so I refine the key and refine the key and refine the key, and I've gotten to the point where I'm pretty satisfied with the one I'm using now, which is actually written in this Bible if you ever wanna take a picture of it. Um, I can show it to you. I'll do that. But uh, just in that genuine journey, I, I just want Jesus, I just want truth. It's been really that dream playing out of like security in the church in a sense has been alerted. They're like, well, you can't think that or who are you? And they'll start calling me all kinds of funny names that I I won't repeat now. But to me, if you're engaged in a substantive conversation, as soon as you start name calling or they start name calling me and saying, well, like, that's that heresy or that's that thing. Just like, so you don't know what you're talking about and you're just like repeating back boogeyman names and you don't have anything of substance to say to me then. All right, (laughs) and I just move on. But uh, it's been that dream of like getting out of the box and I feel like so even at this point in my life with overcoming um, uh, certain things and just setting the, uh, the Lord before me and like mastering my routine uh, for the presence of the Lord and to live a healthy life, and just all these things. I'm like, wow, this, I just, my marriage is on fire. Like I love my family. I love you guys. I love Jesus. Like I just, I feel like I just at this spot that's just beautiful. It's holy, it's righteous and it's full of joy. And uh, so one of the reasons I'm in this holiness series is I'm like, man, I want us all as a community. I don't want it to be a me thing. I want it to be an us thing. Um, but uh, that dream uh, was such a kiss from the Lord to prepare me for what was to come um, so I would stay faithful to his word because there's so, there's so much out there in the landscape. And so I get it in some sense of why the charismatic mind wants to shut down and just like block it all out and just say like, all that's dumb and distracting, I just want Jesus. But beloved, if we don't enjoy the details of God, the devil will get in our details. And uh, again, this dream has truly been my experience, Um, striving with the security mechanism and people to remove them from the traditions of men. Um, even to get them out of their own box and into life and light where they can meet Jesus. Now, church history is extremely vast and the present landscape is so diverse in thought um, that I'm constantly seeking to understand more for the sake of just doing my small part to unite the body of Christ as one in the world. 
I literally believe Jesus' prayer to be one. That's more than being in the same room, not fighting, or just we can do a prayer meeting and get along, or we can do like a prayer meeting with the Catholics and we'll just not take communion together and we won't pray to Mary and there's certain doctrinal understandings. And you know, the, those things are a good stepping stone, but I literally believe that Jesus can make us one and answer these promises. I have such such high views of church unity. And so the part of the reason I study the details and study people that disagree with me is I'm looking for like their foundation of thought and like where we can bring unity as a starting spot so that we can bring like a completeness as one together. And so I just with my small, small sphere, I want to steward that. However, um, my striving with certain ideas with individuals has mostly been in the charismatic community of which we're a part of. Um, but if I could be honest with you, I feel like even in the charismatic community, I see us or myself, if you don't wanna be thrown into this boat, you don't have to, but I do see myself um, as more of an in insider advocating for certain changes. And uh, most of you are familiar with some of the uh, things that we've said about the prophetic, especially in light of 2020. I was just sitting with someone who was trying to validate, you know, why I should believe such and such because this prophet said this and this. And I'm like, yeah, but 2020 though, <laughs> like where's the accountability for that? Like, can you tell me like one major global ministry that actually got it right? I can think of a few like small potatoes guys from other countries that no one probably knows their names. But... Can you think of any like major charismatic or apostolic ministry, you know, because I'm speaking on their terms, um, that got the word right in 2020? Like when we're being told this was the year of 2020 vision and they just kind of sat there with this blank like, well, but he's got power. And I'm like, yeah, so did Joseph Smith. Um. Anyway, so my striving with certain, certain ideas with individuals has mostly come in two, from two communities. One's been the charismatic community. Again, we're, we're a part of that. Um, the other one has been the reformed Calvinist groups, and I'm using both terms because maybe you're familiar with one or the other, like reformed theology or Calvinism, really one and the same. And uh, I'm gonna break some of these things down. And that would include Presbyterians, some Baptists, not all Baptists, the title Baptist almost means as much as non-denominational these days because they have just as much diversity of thought um, and allowance for certain things within their denominations as we do. It's more of an organizational structure for accountability and like retirement for ministers and stuff like that. So, you know, those, those organizations, those structures aren't bad. And I don't, I don't necessarily think that denominational separations are bad. It's the divisions that keep us warring um, with one another in heart and mind that I don't like. But as far as like the legal entities, I don't really have an issue with that. Um, but those are the two groups. And so again, the, Re the Reformed Calvinist groups would be more like the Presbyterians, some Baptists, and then there's some other non-denominational groups. Uh, there's a systematic theology by uh, Wayne Grudem, and he's not the only one, but he's one of the popular ones that has taken Reformed theology, Calvinism, 
and the charismatic expression of the Holy Spirit and has written a book of a systematic theology to kind of combine both of those. Because, and that was an important book because um, usually Reformed theologians are cessationists, meaning the miracles, the gifts of the Spirit, the office of like prophet and apostle, like all those things passed away with the apostles. So when you have a guy like Wayne Grudem who wrote understanding that the gifts still continue today, but kept his Calvinist Reformed theology. It brought some level of unity to the charismatic church, and so that's where you see kind of a blurring of the lines in some of these non-denominational groups that will have strict Reformed doctrine, but also flow in the spirit. And that, honestly, that's one of the reasons like I love the Westminster Chapel. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones is one of my favorite writers and uh, preachers. He's not alive anymore, um, but he was a Reformed guy that... Uh, Love the Holy Ghost and has a powerful book on revival. Uh, but again, just those two groups, the Charismatics and we'll call them the Reformers uh, moving forward. Um, honestly, most of the other denominations or schools of thought, um, there's a lot of agreement that we share with them. Uh, the differences would be more on their form of worship in the liturgy. Um, and so the Methodists, for example, if you were to attend a Methodist church 200 years ago, um, the word, the spirit, and the prayer life of that Methodist church would most likely feel like home to you. And uh, the same can be said for some of the others. Now, the reason I say... just like charismatics and use that as one group is that the... The community is so vast um, in itself and diverse in thought. Um, so diverse, in fact, that there is much, so much doctrine within our own community that contradicts itself. Um, but because we've been in the shut off the mind culture, we don't really recognize these things. Um, and we don't really, we, we don't notice them easily. And those who do notice and dare to bring anything up of like, hey, this is kind of inconsistent here. You're automatically labeled as unloving or worse, you're the rebel who's touching the Lord's anointed by asking a question, <laughs> which that's always been a funny thing to me. When David said, how dare I touch the Lord's anointed, it meant, meant he wasn't going to kill the king, Saul of Israel. So... When they're like, bro, you can't touch the Lord's anointed. I'm like, I'm just asking a question. <laughs> like, slow your roll. <laughs> but I mean, that's, that's the culture. That's the value that we have. Um, again, charismatics were not known for thinking through things because again, reason is seen as fleshly or even demonic sometimes. Uh, therefore, most of our material modern day um, is cheap and shallow. And then we cling to um, simplicity in an ill-defined way. Like, I just want the simple gospel. I just, just want the simplicity of Jesus. And what we mean is we don't want all those details. That's for all the smart people. And uh, man, I've heard people with technical jobs that have to study complicated things to get promotions tell me that they don't get this theology stuff and that's for all the smart people. I'm like, but I know what you just studied the last three years to get the promotion you just got two weeks ago. Like, what do you mean all those smart people? 
Like this is less complicated than all that trigonometry and whatever stuff you're doing over there. But uh, simple gospel. When Paul tells the Corinthians that I pray that you not be distracted from the simplicity that is in Christ as Eve was, he wasn't saying I pray that you not be distracted by details because Jesus is simple. He was talking about a singleness of focus, that your eyes would be on one Jesus, that your eyes would be on him, and that you wouldn't look to the right or the left. So he's talking about a singleness of focus and not a shallowness of detail. But we have taken that to mean a shallowness of detail. Um, I will say, again, the charismatic community is so vast, and so like, there's some really weird stuff. There's some really good stuff, and you have all in between. And I can't go through all, all the good stuff, but I will say uh, some of the guys that have my deep respect within our community would be Mario Murillo. Um, he's just an old-time holiness Pentecostal guy. Uh, David Wilkerson's another one. He's not with us anymore, but a lot of what he preached and, and taught and contended for, just I love that man. Um, modern like guys that are still with us, like I deeply appreciate Alan Hood. Um, I deeply appreciate Corey Russell, but here's the thing about Alan Hood. He went to Methodist seminary and grew up in a Methodist church. And uh, Corey Russell kind of grew up um, alongside Alan Hood as well. And so there's, there's a commonality there. Um, I know uh, even David Wilkerson was a Pentecostal, but he still had close fellowship with Leonard Ravenhill, who had close fellowship with A.W. Tozer. And uh, Ravenhill was a Wesleyan guy. And so uh, Wesleyan denomination was a group that came out from the Methodists when they started getting too liberal because the old Methodists and the modern Methodists, that's just a whole different story. Um, but uh, Leonard Ravenhill began to really affect David Wilkerson and helped out in many practical ways in his ministry as well. So you can kind of see this common thread. There's a reason why we have the works of John Wesley over there <laughs> where you can go read and look at the index and read some of the stuff that he's uh, presented and given to the church. But uh, anyway, those, those are folks within the charismatic community um, that... I have a clear conscience with saying, like, I love those guys, and I appreciate that they're in our community. Um, now, the Reformers, or the Calvinists, on the other hand, um, where our writing tend, our, and our material tends to be, like, just shallow and cheap, um, the Reformers, on the other hand, their writing material, it is deep and it is vast, and it is extremely available. They do a very good job at getting their theology out there. To the fact that if you begin to care about theology and doctrine and detail, you will fall headlong into Calvinism. Like, no doubt about it. Um, but much of their writing, like, it's beautiful. Like, I read it, and here's an example of, like, an old-time reformer. And this isn't big font either. If I had to guess, eh, probably about nine-point font, like fine print on the existence and attributes of God. Like, do you have that much to say about God? <laughs> like, this book is just gorgeous to read. It makes me worship. Oh, my goodness, it's, it's beautiful. Uh, and I didn't bring these books to quote to you, but this is just like our typical modern charismatic material. I mean, 
This is what we have appetites for. And I, and I don't really want to talk about the author of the name of the book, but this is like our typical material. This is what we have capacity and appetite for. And to us, like even just like sitting down to read something, like, <laughs> good job, charismatic. But uh, the reformers, man, they love to read and they love to dig in and they love the detail. In fact, when I first got saved, I just couldn't find anyone who loved to read the Bible more than the reformers. And so, man, I was a hair's breadth away from like fully embracing them. It was perseverance of the saints that kept me from being a Calvinist. And then the guy that I was having a a good discussion with, he's like, well, if you pull the thread on that, the whole thing unravels. And I was like, well, we'll see. And years later, every point has like unraveled to, I mean, just a few years ago, y'all heard me preach on being born innocent. And I'm like, I never (laughs) thought that 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 point would crumble, but it did. And so I'm not only a non-Calvinist, I'm very anti-Calvinist, but I'll do it with a happy face and I can get along with them. Um, just fine. I've just, especially in the council room and seeing people get free from demons, like demons hide in their theology. And so I hate it so much. Anyway, I'm going to digress and I'm going to move on because I do want to talk positive about them uh, as well. (laughs) And, uh, Although I disagree with their uh, predestination foundations, I do really enjoy reading them. And uh, I have more reform resources in my library than I do charismatic or Wesleyan resources, actually. Um, When I started building my library at the very beginning, I really didn't have a lot of charismatic, a little bit of Wesleyan because of Leonard Ravenhill. Um, But uh, it was mostly reform books that I was reading, and I'm reading their own literature, like not coming to their same conclusions, because again, I had such a foundation in just reading the Bible before I started exploring um, exploring other things. But uh, they have great things to say, um, especially the old ones. The new ones are a little bit more cranky because they're fighting everyone but the Catholics at this point, it seems like. Um, but uh, my personal favorite, and I mentioned him already, my personal favorite reformer is Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He didn't even finish his exposition on Romans, but I have his whole exposition that he did complete up to like chapter 15 something um, on my bookshelf, and it's about that many sermons in just multiple volumes. I think it's 14 volumes on Romans, and they're just such beautiful, beautiful pieces. In fact, when I was... Uh, doing the Sermon on the Mount series, I think five or six years ago, um, I was going through his book on the Sermon on the Mount, and it was just glorious. And he is one of the most honest reformers I've ever read, because when he comes across scripture that doesn't fit into his theology, he doesn't explain it away. He's like, this I don't understand because of my theology. It actually does say this, though I don't understand it. I'm like, wow. What a guy. Like, I, can ha- I have respect for that. And so he's, he's one of my favorites. Um, he was deep, and he loved the Holy Spirit. Um, and most of them don't, because, again, the cessationist theology or doctrine comes from them. Um, you might recognize them in their YouTube videos now, maybe after this, uh, this session, but modern day, a lot of them put out a lot of documentaries, a lot of YouTube videos about these guys being false teachers. Has anyone seen the American Gospel documentary? One guy? Cool. Uh, 
the American gospel kind of points at issues within the non-denominational world. And I would agree with all of their concerns. I just don't agree with their conclusions. And so what I do see is people unable to navigate the theological waters get frustrated at a shallow, reckless, charismatic community, see a documentary or a YouTube video about a false teacher, and then not know that they're being lured in by like Calvinist presuppositions, and then they start caring about theology because they're hearing words like truth, and you know, they're, the Calvinists explain the frustration of the frustrated charismatic so well, and then you have people that fall headlong into Calvinism, and it's just like, yikes, don't do that. I remember Lindsay Davis was someone who became famous in Calvinist circles because she left the Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry and became a, uh, a reformer with those guys. And they put her on all the podcasts and did all the interviews because they wanted the down and dirty about Bethel. And uh, she said some things that I feel like us as a charismatic community should take to heart, um, but without becoming reformers in the process. And so... Through the years, though, she's actually repented and come closer back into center and kind of rejected those theological suppositions. She, she seems to, poor, poor girl, she seems to be kind of tossed back and, and forth, and I hate to, to bring her up, but that would be an example of their videos, their, their documentaries and stuff, and they're just constantly pumping these out. Um, Paul Washer's not one who does these videos, but he is a part of them. And he would be another reformer that is one of my absolute favorite preachers. But it's, there's this tension in me because I love to listen to him, but I hate to recommend him unless you have the framework to understand his theological presuppositions. The reason I like him is because as a young man in seminary, do you know whose prayer meetings he went to and whose house he went to to pray with and talk scripture with? Leonard Ravenhill. So it's that Leonard Ravenhill, that broken-hearted revival praying, and that broken-hearted revival praying like holiness preacher. That's the DNA I like in Paul Washer, but um, my, uh, my hesitation in recommending him, even though he does preach holiness, he comes from a Reformed perspective. And so the holiness message tends to be bipolar, and this is what I mean. You better be holy or you're going to hell. But I'm always just a worm and I'm always going to sin and I'm never free from sin. You better be holy, but I'm just a worm. You better be holy, but, 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 but I'm just a worm. And it's just like this. Why do you preach it if you can't have it type thing? And so anyway, it's just kind of cultural things that I'm, I'm hitting on. But uh The issue, ultimately, to me with the Reformers has been their overreactive theology. So Reformed theology, and why we call them Reformers, comes from the Reformation. So everyone knows what the Reformation is, right? 1500s, protest against the Catholic Church started by Martin Luther. Uh, What you have there in the 1500s, Martin Luther didn't intend to start like this big protest. He just wanted to reform the Catholic Church. Because up until then, you had the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church, and they had a little bit of scuffle, like way back when. Uh, But for hundreds of years, you had these two churches, and Martin Luther wanted to reform because he saw that the Catholic Church was getting into error and an emphasis on focusing on works 
And although grace was in their language, they really did not have grace in practice and understand it because they overemphasized works so much. And so here comes Martin Luther with a message of grace. But here's what you have. You have the theological giant of the Catholic Church that has been able to develop her theology for hundreds of years. Now you have these young men in protest against the Catholic Church under even the threat of death, depending where you live, because it wasn't like I'm gonna go just start my church down the road thing. It was if you leave the Catholic Church, we will hunt you down and kill you. We will put you on trial. We will burn you at the stake. Like The stakes were high. And so you have young men protesting against the Catholic Church to come out from the Catholic Church, maintain their freedom to worship Jesus, at the same time, like they're having to justify their protests through the scripture. And the other thing that you have is people getting Bibles in their hands for the first time during this time, uh, a little bit before proceeding. And so you have generations that did not read the Bible that are reading the Bible for the first time. So you have young men with a new book and a new movement justifying their protest against a theological giant that's been there for centuries. And so under that pressure, you have an equal and opposite overreaction to reform or to Catholic theology, to where the Catholics focused on works with no grace. Then the reformers came and the pendulum swung and it was all grace with no works. And I'm going to go through just in simple form, like their theology. And you can remember it in the acronym TULIB if you've never heard it. And so now you'll get my joke when I'm around people sometimes. I'm like, I love pulling up tulips for my gardens. <laughs> yuck, yuck, yuck. Because the acronym TULIP is really their found, just a simple way to uh, summarize their theology. So T, it's total depravity. Now, at the beginning of my walk with the Lord and even just growing up with the church, I thought we all believed that and I thought we all agreed on that. That you're born sinners because of Adam's decision. You're born with a sin nature and your sin nature is one that you cannot respond to God. You don't even want to respond to God. Like if you wanted to, you couldn't want to. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. You're born totally enabled and totally in sin as a sinner. It's total depravity which, you know, that, that doesn't sound so bad. Most people agree on that. I don't anymore, and we're gonna talk about that as we go in this series. Um, the next one, you, T-U. The next one, you, is unconditional election. So here's where it starts getting ouch for me, is that God picked everyone he wanted to be saved before the foundation of the world. And so, if you're not picked, too bad. If you raise your hand and decide, I wanna be picked, too bad. You don't get to go to heaven because God didn't pick you from the foundation of the world. Unconditional election. He elected the ones that he want, wanted. L, limited atonement. Because he picked the ones that he wanted for himself to go to heaven and the rest of you go to hell. Um, the atonement of Jesus's blood is only for those he picked beforehand. So even if you could somehow like, hey, I actually wanna go to heaven, Jesus, help me, get me out of my sin, save me from my sin. 
then it'd be like, well, I already paid for the groceries in a sense, and I'm not going back in the store, and so just tough, I'm not paying for you, because I already bought the ones that I wanted. I don't want you. So limited atonement. And I know for Calvinists watching this, they're probably cringing because they're like, Dad, you're misrepresenting me. But uh, anyway, (laughs) irresistible grace. Because he picked you and it has nothing to do with works, when he picks you and um, puts his spirit in you, there's nothing you can do to resist it. It's just like, boing, I'm alive and here's God. Wow, now I'm a Christian and I love Jesus. And this is amazing. And now there's nothing I can do to lose my salvation. So the next one, P, is perseverance of the saints. Is basic, we know it as once saved, always saved it, at the end of their theology. So he picked me, his blood works for me, and it's effectual. There's nothing I can do to resist him. There's nothing that I can do to get it. And so it was this complete overreactive theology that took all of the works out of it and placed all the emphasis on exaggerations of grace. Now... Here's where the waters start getting muddy, because everyone besides Catholics and Orthodox, um, the Orthodox Church, have been affected by Reformed theology, because if you're neither of those, if you're not Orthodox and if you're not Catholic, you're a Protestant. You're a protester of the Catholic Church. We still are. Now, it's important to note, like, the Catholic Church has been Reformed, and it has changed, I'm not going to pray to Mary. She never shed blood for me to draw near to her. Um, I'll respect her, and I'm not going to talk bad about God's mom. My gosh. But uh, she, she's not for me to talk to. I'll say, hey, when we get to heaven. I'm sure we'll have a great conversation then. Um, and so we have some minor differences, but as far as like our response to the Lord and our response to the gospel and biblical understanding, they've actually come a long way in coming back to biblical truths than they were in the 1500s. So they're not the same Catholic church now that they were in the 1500s, at least the faithful ones. And in in fact, if you read some of the old Catholic mystics like St. John of the Cross or Madame Guyon and Brother Lawrence, like these people were on fire and they knew Jesus. So it's not the same Catholic Church, but still there's things to protest. I'm not going to get into those things right now. So just because of that position, like we're Protestant. And because of that, our theology, if you're Protestant, no matter where you find yourself today, has been influenced, whether for good or for bad, by Reformed theology. And again, Reformed theology is that tulip thing that I walked us through real simple. So in the charismatic church, uh, one of the ways it affects us is we often have cute little maxims that shape our doctrine, you know, memeable quotes, if I can use modern cultural speak. We have these cute little maxims that shape our doctrine for us, and we don't realize where it comes from or how it affects us or what the Bible actually says. So I have two examples, and there's, we have many such sayings. But uh, one example, and maybe you've heard it, is God's pen doesn't have an eraser on it. 
So the man of God says that from the pulpit, and we're like, yeah, God's pen doesn't have an eraser on it. Revelation chapter three, verse five. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. Our maxims didn't get up to heaven. Someone forgot to tell Jesus that his pen is not supposed to have an eraser on it because it does in Revelation. There you go. Joshua, bless you. Or this one, if God judges America, he'll have to apologize to Jesus, right? Because the cross and the blood and the price that he paid, we want to exalt the cross, but we don't want to lie about what it did. It didn't remove the wrath of God. It vindicated the wrath of God. There's a world of difference, and we would do good to understand the difference. But still, in the charismatic community, we hear this all the time. If God judges America, he'll have to apologize to Jesus because there's no more judgment because of the cross. The, there's no more wrath because of the cross. But 2 Timothy 4.1, Jesus judges the living. Hebrews 13.4, fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. 1 Peter 4.5, Jesus is ready to judge. Ephesians 5.6, the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. It would be easy to go on, but you get the point. And we charismatics, we just easily believe every cheap little phrase we hear, again, because the man of God said it, or the worship leader said it, or I saw it on a meme from a ministry page, and it just touched my soul. The first example about the eraser that comes from Reformed theology that has grown its weeds in our garden The second about God not judging comes from dispensationalism mixed with undetected reformed theological thoughts. And it's always a comical thing to me when a charismatic tells me that because of my honest, sincere, just I want truth. And I think we all want truth, but sometimes we can just get such programming from environments that we have no, that we like sell our capacity to think through things for ourselves. Um, but oftentimes in charismatic groups, I get blamed with like trying to seek this new revelation and I can't be searching for new stuff because Jesus already revealed it. While at the same time, the foundation of everything they're saying is rooted in dispensationalism, which is a, a offshoot Anglican pastor's doctrine from the 1800s that compartmentalized God's works in certain ways in certain times. And then it's like, wait, you have like literally one of the youngest doctrines in church history, and you're telling me not to search for something new? Like, I'm crying out for the ancient paths. Like, if it's in here, it's fair game. I just want to understand this in truth. So it's always funny to me. They're like, you can't look for something new, and then they start teaching me about this 1800s doctrine. I'm like, oh, yeah. I'm not looking for something new. I just want it to be pure. I just want it to be pure. Equally as funny to me is if you watch some of these reform, like watch out false teacher videos from the reformers, 
you'll hear the term orthodox a lot. <laughs> and uh, when I hear that term on their lips, I'm like, well, your theology is only 500 years old at best. Like, the orthodox church laughs at your use of that word. What are you coming up with Calvinism in here pretending like, oh, we're orthodox? Like, it just, my gosh. Now, online, these two groups, the Reformers and the Charismatics, you've got like the Bill Johnson versus the Phil Johnson. You like that? See what I did there? You got John MacArthur versus like Brian Houston or Joel Osteen, right? And uh, so you have these guys that are like set up as mortal enemies online in, in one sense. And uh, what's interesting in this situation where like these two groups are so diametrically opposed to one another, uh, reformers have their faces set against charismatics in just such strange ways. Like they treat us like enemies of Jesus and his gospel. Like we're not brothers like reasoning at the same table. They're like, if you send your kids to that church that plays that Bethel music, you're going to hell. And it's just like, wow, <laughs> it's very cultish. There's no room to be able to come together to reason. Now, not all of them, but uh, it's still representative of a large part of their community that has the loudest voice, especially online. The reformers, they have their face like really set against the charismatics. And here's one thing that I love about the charismatic community is they're just so focused on Jesus, even if their definition of the simplicity of Jesus is uh, a strange thing to me. Uh, they're so focused on Jesus that honestly, most of them don't know and don't care. They're like the reformers are warring with them and they're just like happy in their like rivers running around the altar and doing their fire tunnels. And it's like, I don't care. <laughs> So all the vileness and the misrepresentation really goes one way. It's from the reformers towards the charismatics. The charismatics tend to just avoid it, um, even if they do know about it. And some of, some of the leaders, I appreciate their position where he's like, I'm not gonna answer them. I'm not gonna waste my time with them. Um, the only thing that I would say to that, especially as like global leaders that run like powerful ministries, it would be good to have educational debate. It would be good to do videos together um, and challenge one another and discuss so people can see us coming together talking about those things, but even just the debate in the educational environment would actually be helpful. It would be very helpful instead of just like, ah, I'm not gonna answer them. So in some sense, I feel like there can be good in that, but as a complete answer, that that's our posture all the time. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. I don't think I do. Um, but again, the reformers, even though a lot of them are just very vile and nasty, um, they do raise some true concerns that we should heed. But again, their conclusions are wrong. And the spirit with which they come is often extremely unreasonable. And when I say this term unreasonable is where we begin to see what these two opposed groups actually have in common. And this is why, and that I mentioned at the beginning in my strivings with people to like, I wanna understand truth and let's get out of the box together. Let's get out from this man-made stuff and let's find the truth and the purity in the word. Let's find Jesus at the top of the box and begin to cultivate the land that's around us. Like, that's what I desire, and I find like it really goes well with most people, but it's just these two groups, and this is where they're united. 
they're both the most unreasonable groups I have engaged since I've been a Christian. And it's, it's astonishing. But this is, this is where we see what they have in common. So although, um, well, I'll, I'll say it like this. Their, common, their commonality kind of comes from a cultural thing that we both share. That although that they're Protestant and they're protesting the Catholic Church, which one of the protests is we don't want a pope telling us how to think, they still have their own popes. The man of God up top who tells you what to think. John Calvin himself of Calvinism while throwing stones at the Catholic Church, he set up his own throne in Geneva and he became the same murderous tyrant that he and the reformers accused the Pope of being. And today they still have their popes in a sense. It's the men who write their commentaries and have their big conferences and telling people how to interpret scripture. And the culture is hardly... In, this is in reform circles, and the culture is hardly different than the Jehovah's Witnesses culture. I don't know if you've talked to Jehovah's Witnesses about the Bible or other books, and to them, it's like if it doesn't come from the watchtower, it's not the word of God. Like if it doesn't come from John MacArthur, if John MacArthur doesn't approve, it's not the word of God. You know, they have other men that they, they look up to, but he's one of the, the prominent voices over there. And I like John. He has a lot of really good things to say. And I loved it when he told the LGBT community that you're not born that way. My only cry is, I wish you actually had a theology consistent with that claim so that you could really help them. So they're, they're really programmed. The culture kind of programs itself even in a sense, according to the Pope's word. So programmed with how to think, and they're gladly left without the capacity to reason while they think they're being reasonable. And then the charismatics or the modern Pentecostals were actually more Catholic than the, the reformers on this one because we set up our prophets our apostles, and I, I put those in quotes. I believe in prophets, I believe in apostles. But we set many men up like that as our popes and you have this big charismatic, like a vast culture and you have this group that submits to this pope and this group that submits to this pope and this group that submits to this pope. So we set up our prophets and apostles who not only tell us how to think about the Bible, but then they use that special revelation. And I believe in prophetic words. Like, please, like, don't get me wrong. I believe in prophets. I believe in prophetic words. And we've spoken much about prophecy. I do think that's one of those specific areas that the Lord, especially in 2020, put his finger on of like, hey, church, get this prophetic thing right. You misheard for a reason. Why? Anyway, like they're still set up and they use special revelation just like the Pope does um, and each to lead their individual sects within the charismatic community. And then what the charismatics do or what we do is charismatics, because I'll throw myself in there since we're a part of that. 
we validate them with the same apologetics as the cults in the false religions, like Joseph Smith of Mormonism or Muhammad of Islam. Like Muhammad had his encounters and uh, many Muslims saw miracles. Same thing with Mormons. Like even today, the Mormon missionaries go out and they're like, read this book of Mormon and you'll feel the burning on your heart. You'll feel the witness of the spirit. And they actually feel the presence of a spirit. And so we have the same appeals to power of like, well, this guy spoke this word and this guy worked in in this much power and it's the same apologetic that the cults use. It's so easy for demons to just do something behind the scenes and, and like show up with a little pop and wow and pizzazz and like, oh, that's powerful. And it's like this little funny guy that is just full of darkness. Like those guys had encounters with angels too. You can feel the power and the presence of something. They do miracles. Like remember Moses and the sorcerers of Egypt. Everyone had their miracles. So where's truth to be found? The word of the Lord. But again, just like the reformers, we in the charismatic community, we set up our popes too. And then by having these popes over us, we pretend that's accountability. And then... Once we're programmed in how to think, the information or scriptural content that comes in that falls outside the scope of how we've been programmed to think, we literally become unreasonable to outside thoughts. We'll just dismiss it, reject it, or just can't, like, I've seen people literally just, like, shut down in conversation. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but it's something to actually be worked through. It, I know the older you get, it is hard to change your mind. It's like if you've never lifted, I'm on 30 pound dumbbells right now. I need to get more. So if anyone wants to buy me new dumbbells. But right now, if you've never like curled with a 30 pound dumbbell your entire life and you just pick one up, it's gonna be difficult and I doubt you'll be able to do it. Um, It's the same thing with grappling with concepts that you've never wrestled through because everything's been spoon-fed to your mind and told you how to think, been programmed in a certain way, that when you begin to wrestle with things that are outside of that, it's like picking up that weight that is too heavy for you. It's like you, you can't do it, but you'll be able to if you'll put in the work. So if we find ourselves there by, for some reason, and recognize it, like just recognizing it is like, wow, this really hurts to actually change my mind. I need to take my time with this and consider these things. And like, I, I don't know what to think about that right now. Let me just, just let this simmer and settle. Like, that's a good place to be. That's not a bad place to be. That means you're working your way up because I didn't get to 30 pounds when I, um, when I started. Like, I was so weak from not doing anything. I think I started with 15s. Tens or fifteens is what I had. But I started and it was something and then you build up from there. And then as you mature in the Lord, you'll be able to handle more concepts. And this might sound like real neat coming from me now, but for those of you who don't know and then those of you who do know, I'll remind you, I cheated through high school from eighth grade to 12th grade. My education was completely illegitimate because all I wanted to do was look at naughty things that I wasn't supposed to, do all the things that you do with the naughty things, play with my friends and play video games. And 
Like, that's how my mind matured until I got saved when I was 26 after prefrontal cortex stuff is already done. Like, prefrontal cortex got formed in the context of massive dopamine overdoses on just many addictions that were just completely unchecked and wicked and destroyed my mind. I had just complete, like, ADHD, couldn't focus, couldn't understand, couldn't comprehend, couldn't communicate, couldn't any of that stuff. All those things just destroyed me. But God, and he didn't, like, come and zap me and just, like, give me a new brain. How he gave me a new brain was, come away with me, read my word. Talk to me. And so it's through the days, the weeks, the months, and the years of giving myself to him, he has literally changed me and renewed my mind, healed me from like personality disorders or the ADHD that our culture thinks is like, oh, once that's there, like it's always gonna be there. Like, no, it really doesn't have to. He can heal you. He can touch your mind if you would submit it to him. And so when I say these things, I'm like, I understand the hard work it is especially if you don't have the capacity or if you've been programmed in a certain way. I didn't have the capacity and I was programmed in a certain way. And so thanks be to the Lord. Like, this is alive and full of anointing, the voice of the Lord, healing power. Like, there's nothing, there's nothing like the Bible. So I stand before you as a witness and not just some pundit who, like, read a cool book on psychology I don't read psychology books, actually. Um, not saying it's all bad, but I just, there's other things to read that I'd rather spend my time on, like books about God. <laughs> I like to read about God. But uh, again, just coming back to emphasize, like I understand it can be hard. I've sat with people where it's like you point out plain verbatim stuff, just like slow down, read word for word, line by line, consider the order of operations um, that you're reading certain things in and like really like come with objectivity. And I've seen like as slow as I can take it and as plain as the scripture is, like people just not have the capacity out It wasn't that long ago I was sitting with someone who vaguely is familiar with our love for the law of the Lord um, or my personal love for the law of the Lord and how I understand the law being written on our hearts as a new covenant believer and because of that being able to see the new covenant in both testaments. Testament is a timeline word and an organizational word. Covenant is God's word. And covenant is all throughout the Bible. The Old Covenant is in the Old Testament, but uh, the New Covenant is all throughout. And I had, was sitting with the person that was taking issue with that, and they turned to the scripture in uh, 2 Corinthians 3 where it says, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their face, but when a person turns to the Lord, the veil's removed, and you know where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom and all that. So they were using that passage to say, see, when you turn to the Lord, the old is removed. I'm like, no, it's not. Like, read that slowly and like, ask them the question. Like, please, just go word for word, and you tell me what's removed. Is it Moses, or is it the veil? And they went real slow like I asked, but you could just see the face, like, tilt. 
like, because it wasn't saying what they were saying it said. But then they didn't know how to respond to that. So it was that same just like, ouch, I don't know what I think about that, but yeah, it was the veil that was removed. And uh, so I, I, I get it and I sympathize with that. I remember uh, preaching at the 10 Days Tent several years ago and one of the pastor's wives was there and I was preaching on the difference between rhema and logos and how logos is not just the written word of God, but it's actually the understanding of the thoughts and tents of the heart of the rhema that's spoken. That's why Jesus says that you'll give an account for every idle rhema you say, but it's by your logos that you'll be condemned or justified. The things that were inside you, what did you mean when you said that rhema? And so I was, I took about an hour because I know, especially in like word of faith communities and um, some Pentecostal circles, like they had this certain idea of rhema um, and a certain idea of logos that is, actually not helpful and I'm trying to come in so that we can come in with that sword of the spirit that's sharper than any two-edged sword and effectual like in Hebrews, that's the logos of God. And uh, so I'm teaching that and the pastor's wife came up to me afterwards. She's like, I hear what you're saying, but it is physically hard for me to understand and shift my thinking. Like I hear it and I'm not, I can't contend with it, but it is hurting my mind to change it. And I'm like, wow, well, let's pray about that. And like it, it so it, it takes time for these things, but recognize like we can be in that place where we're just so programmed. And that's why the culture that I want here is like we have uh, many teachers that come and, and present things. And we don't have like, if it comes from the pulpit, you better believe it. Like I want you to challenge stuff. Just because someone teaches up here or I'm the pastor or whatever, it's just like, you don't have to believe everything that I say, hook, line, and sinker, even anything that I presented tonight. Like, come and let's talk. Let's come to the table of reason. We should have a value to love Jesus, to love one another, and reason together in the scriptures. And, and it's by this that we grow. This is the sharpening of one another, where we can get sharp and we can actually go after devils because we know what in the world we're talking about. Because... Again, our vision, if you read the vision on the doors over there, it's like, I wanna be a part of a family that we, we love well, but we go deep in understanding and applying the scripture. And so my intent, again, is not to gossip, but just to equip you to navigate the sea of confusion in our current theological climate and come into center on the Bible in Christ. There's many harmful ideas that come from uh, these groups that do practically affect us. Um, especially because of the size and the influence that each have. And we'll get into the specific doctrines in future sessions. But for now, I want to close with one of the most heartbreaking conclusions I've come across um, because of Reformed theology, whether it's in the Reformed circles or whether it's in uh, charismatic circles or people that are trying to like struggle through these things and, and, uh, and clear up. But I want to... Turn to Romans 9 with me real quick. And we're gonna look at verses nine through 23. I'm sorry, 19 through 23. In Romans chapter nine, verse 19, Paul's writing, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? On the contrary, 
Oh, wait, let me start at 18. So then he hardened, or he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Who will you say to me then? Why does, or will you say to me then, sorry, I don't have my glasses. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, endured with such patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. So reformers misunderstanding the corporate context of Romans 9 that it sits within, they apply this to each and every individual. And I've come across this so many times, especially with dealing with um, the alphabet soup people. Tormented by the church's own theology that they've been fed. One, they come with, I was born a sinner, so God made me like this, I'm a victim. And then two, they might be coming with a sincere heart, like I want the Lord, like I wanna repent, but I don't know how to get free from this sin and I know God doesn't like it. I'm not gonna deny my conscience and pretend like God's gonna be okay with me. So they at least respect the Bible enough to not twist it. Um, The ones that I've sat with that are really desiring freedom but their conclusion from this verse given to them by a reformed theologian is that, well, maybe God doesn't want me and I'm just predestined for hell. Maybe I'm just a trash vessel. And they're just stuck in the hopelessness of that. One, you're not a victim, you're a rebel. You weren't born that way. And even science is... Uh, catching up with the Bible with regard to that. But turn with me to our opening passage in 2 Timothy chapter two. Romans nine, I want you to see the corporate context of Israel and the nations of the earth and Pharaoh. Like you see the clash of the gods, so to speak, in there that had to do with a corporate people and not the individual. Paul uses the same terminology of vessel in this next passage But here is Paul talking to the individual. Verse 19, the firm foundation of God. And I'm just gonna uh, spend time in the scripture with you um, a little bit before we get to the the vessel part. But uh, nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands having the seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. There's a passage in 1 John 5 that says, he who has been born of God keeps himself. So Paul's saying everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Verse 20, now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware 
some for honor and some for dishonor. So recognize the language from Romans 9. But again, the context is completely different. Verse 21, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. And so that's one of the tragic applications that I've seen that just come and torment so many people through just a misunderstanding and a misuse of Romans 9. And I've seen so many people like just with tears in their eyes, like, am I a trash vessel? Does God really not want me because I can't be free from this? But here's Paul saying with just simple words for the individual, if you wanna be a vessel of honor, you can. Just cleanse yourself from those things. Repent, turn towards the Lord, and cooperate with the spirit of grace in your life. And when you walk by the spirit, you'll put to death the deeds of the flesh, and you'll have a beautiful relationship with the savior of your soul. So anyway, uh, that is the introduction for where we're going, because some of these concepts, we're going to have to see the reformed theological foundation that they spring from and how they've infected even the charismatic community and the non-denominational realm and in other ways that we think because Protestants in one degree or another, we've all been affected by that TULIP acronym in, in some sense. And so if we can think deeper and understand like where our cultural maxims come from many times and recognize those foundations, I feel like it would make us much more effective people at dealing with sin in our own lives and bringing people into a happy, holy community. And so we'll talk about some of the specifics of uh, those, those issues in the future sessions, but thanks for bearing along with me. That was the intro to where we're going next. And Dari, do you have communion tonight? Sweet. Allie, and we can just go into communion mode. I'm gonna pray. Lord, I love you. I'll just lift up and remind you of your son's prayer in John 17. He said to sanctify us in the truth and that your word is truth. All we want is truth. And we thank you that you are truth, that your word is truth. So we just ask you for your spirit to walk alongside us. We can't do this ourselves. You created us weak on purpose to need you. And so we just need you to wrestle through these things. It says your spirit searches your depths and reveals them to spiritual men and women. Just ask you for that searching and that revealing of the depths. We thank you for a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Jesus. Thank you for being filled up with the fullness of God. We thank you even that the revelation that you're releasing to us would first just make us better worshipers because we'll fall deeper in love with you. We thank you that it will touch our worship. We thank you that it will touch um, our armor belt, so to speak, so that our weapons can be mighty to pull down strongholds, lies and arguments of the enemy. And so we thank you that you love your church, you love your bride, you love your children. And we just ask you again, make us one as you are one. We pray Jesus's prayer, make us one as you are one. You see all these theological divisions and articulations, and you know, God, exactly where the devil is in every single one. I pray that you would remove him completely from the church in spirit and in word, that he would be completely gone and your church would be united. Yes. We love you so much. 
And we bless you and we thank you for your word that does bring healing to all who will come to you. You will not cast anyone out. We love you so much. Amen and amen.